This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Here we are at Midweek, Ag Week. A lot of uh, activities going on around the country. There'll be a lot of activities tomorrow in our nation's capital for Ag Day. So all sorts of things happening. And we have a lot to talk about on our program today in that we have the uh, E15 summer sales proposal out and a lot of reaction to that. We'll be talking with Jeff Cooper uh, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association a little bit later on as uh, he kind of breaks that down, what's in the proposal, what do they like, what do they not like about it, and uh, does that get us closer to actually having E15 sales year-round? We'll talk about that coming up on uh, the program today. We're also going to talk with Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye about the, the damage being done by trade tensions with China, with China and the tariffs. Uh, we're starting to hear, you know, that we don't know when the deal may get done with China and if it's going to get done. Now we're hearing, you know, about all the big items that still have to be addressed and that there's a possibility that there will not be a deal done at all. So all that uh, on the table. Meanwhile, damage is being done and some interesting study, uh, interesting information from this study showing a state-by-state breakdown, how much has been lost uh, while this uh, trade war has been going on with China. We'll get into all that. And there's also a report out from USDA that shows greenhouse gas emissions from beef production and inputs are not significant contributors to climate change. We'll talk about that study with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association a little bit later on. So we have lots to talk about on the show today, but we'll start it off with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Hi, Todd. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm doing well. Thanks. Well, we do have lots to get into. First of all, what are you hearing uh, from uh, different folks in agriculture about the president's budget proposal? I know it's just a proposal, and these things never go through as proposed, but uh, what kind of reaction are you hearing? Well, I I think, to be expected, there are a lot of people out there who have uh, significant concerns. You know, um, I think the one thing that you can take from this is it is just a proposal, Um, and typically what the president asks for in these kind of situations never entirely comes to pass. Um, You know, Senator Grassley made a a comment yesterday um, about the fact that the president has looked at all areas of the budget. It's not just picking on agriculture. You know, we're seeing it in all departments, maybe except for defense, um, you know, where there's massive cuts being proposed. Um, So in the end, it's not going to mean that that's what the president's necessarily going to get. But I think you know, with everything going on in this industry, it, it really does, uh, you know, gets people riled up just a little bit because obviously, you know, there's a lot of headwinds in agriculture at the moment. Yeah, I think especially interesting uh, coming so soon after he signed the farm bill when this budget proposal changes a lot of things in that farm bill. Right, yeah, you know, and that's the thing. I think, uh, you know, that farm bill is still a really good thing because obviously it, it does bring some certainty. Uh, you know, and for what farmers can expect and, you know, how they can plan and those sort of things. But, um, you know, again, I, I think, you know, people need to kind of take a breath and just wait and see how it plays out. I think, uh, you know, there's plenty of support in the House and the Senate for agriculture in general. And I, I really have a hard time believing that, you know, we see more cut, cuts to crop insurance or anything like that at all at this point. 
it sure does uh, create some conversation, though, uh, some talking points in the yeah. presidential campaign, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, perhaps poorly timed, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I find it strange that the, the administration would want to open itself up to that, but uh, they have. All right, now let's right. move to the E-15 proposal that came out yesterday. What are you hearing on that? Well, you know, Mike, I was reading through this yesterday. You know, we had an initial story about the basics of what was in it. Uh, but going back through it, it's it's really interesting to see the contrast between the E-15 part of the rule and uh, the RINs reform part of the rule. Uh, you know, on the E-15 side, we have a lot of history and a lot of a lot of exploratory work that EPA has done on that issue for years. Uh, and I, I'm not a lawyer, but if if I was taking sides, I'd say that part of the rule seems pretty solid. Uh, basically, the EPA is going to change the Clean Air Act to say that E-15 is substantially similar to E-10. And another interesting part of that is uh, the EPA makes the case that E-10 was not necessarily a maximum, uh, you know, for the RVP, RVP waiver. It's more of a floor, and so it opens up the door for E-15. So I, I, I think legally they're probably on more solid ground than they are on the other half of the rule. That other half of the rule, uh, you know, even, even in this, uh, the agency is saying they still have no... Uh, you know, data-based evidence that the, the RINs market had been manipulated in any way. Um, but then they talk about all the stakeholder uh, input that they received on, on the proposals that they released yesterday. Um, and so I, I guess on a legal basis, I mean, my guess would be this part of the rule is going to be open uh, quite wide to challenges. But on the other hand, it, it seems the agency is still, even in this proposal, looking for input, you know, on the, on the ideas that they raise. Well, if they're if they really believe it's the market's not being manipulated, then why does it need reformed? Exactly right. Yeah, and I you know I think there's been plenty of evidence, you know at least anecdotally that um, you know the, the rise and fall of rent prices, uh, just just the timing of those things seem rather odd. And so I, I think you're right. You know, may, if anything, this is going to open up, uh, you know, to questions about how to make some of these things uh, more fair and, and more even across the board and. At least this rule does that. It raises the specter that, you know, these things may be going on. You know, we don't have the data now, but how can we make it better? And, I, you know, I, I don't know that there's hardly anyone that would disagree with that approach. But it, bottom line is we're a step closer to getting E15 year-round. And, you know, a couple things we right. need to remind people of. One, in some places it is already available year-round. And, two, Absolutely. This, the other thing is this just creates the option – for it to be sold, it's not a mandate that it has to be sold. You know, and that's a, that's a great point, Mike, because I think, you know, this is going to court, and uh, the fact that it isn't a mandate on the E15 side of it, I think that really plays well for the ethanol industry because all the industry's ever wanted was just more market access. Um, and this rule is basically saying, hey, we don't see a difference from E10 to E15. In fact, E15 might even be more beneficial when it comes to the waiver issue. Um, so I, I think there's a lot going in this rule, but then again, you know, uh, as things play out in court, we, it's really hard to tell where it's going to go at this point. Yeah, stay tuned for that. Hey, meanwhile, yeah. um, interesting, the push for USMCA starting to ratchet up, and uh, looks like there's might be some new Democrats in the House that might uh, want to oppose some of it. Well, yeah, you know, and I think, uh, you know, that's an interesting. That's an interesting issue because honestly, uh, you know, here again we're at a point in agriculture where we, we need some good things to happen, um, and I and I think uh, the fact that 
you know, we see a lot of bipartisan support in both House, the House and Senate when it comes uh, to agriculture. And maybe, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Democrats in the House are going to realize how important this issue is across the country. It's not just a Midwest thing. I mean, this is, uh, you know, opening the trade, the trade situation for agriculture uh, is an important deal. And so I think hopefully at the end of the day, uh, you know, cruel heads will prevail on this. We'll see. Todd, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. All right. We're going to talk about the damage from the trade war with China next with Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye. Stay with us here on AOA. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. As we continue to wait to see if we get a trade deal done with China, and if so, what's in it, there's no doubt, and I've talked a lot about this, that the damage has already been done, and any deal that eventually gets done will have to be judged in the context of can we make up what we have lost? Well, what, can we quantify what we've lost? There's some interesting uh, information out now, a study on that, and here to tell us about it is American Farm Bureau Federation economist Veronica Dye. Veronica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. So you have put the information together. You can quantify the damage that's been done by this trade war? Well, you know, I... It's kind of hard to separate, uh, you know, different different impacts. Um, and when you look at the total amount of ex- ag exports in the last year, I think it hides quite a lot. Uh, but when we look at China itself, uh, you know, it's pretty clear the the case that's being made here that, as as we're all pretty aware of, our exports have dropped like a, like an, a balloon with no air. Um, we've compared state ag exports to China between 2000. 17 and 2018, you know, there's some states uh, where they're looking at losses in exports to China of over 90%. Wow. So, you know, we talk a lot about soybeans. Obviously, that's a big part of it. But there are a lot of other uh, other products that are impacted by this trade war as well. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good point. So, you know, there's some products that are particularly exposed to this uh, uh, trade dispute and you know that it's those products that for whom China is a big share of their total. So of course soybeans, but you know you got to think of uh, sorghum, uh, dairy products, apples, cherries, seafood, ginseng, whiskey, and then there's some processed foods also that are uh, pretty focused and, and concentrated on the on the Chinese market. And they've they've seen some pretty uh, unfortunate and interesting impacts from from this spat. And also ethanol and ethanol products, uh, maybe you don't. we don't have all the data because that was mar- a market that was just starting to open up to those uh, products. So uh, maybe we didn't lose as much percentage-wise because we hadn't started selling as much, but the potential sales there that we lost uh, would be significant. 
Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, we only we're only measuring those products that already had an established export uh, channel to China, right? So, uh, we think about ethanol. Um, what about beef, right? We were, had just opened up the Chinese market to uh, to U.S. beef. Uh, we know there's a lot of potential for almost all ag products in in the Chinese market. Um, so, when we look at um, the missed opportunities, the missed sales, that's one thing, but also the missed opportunities to, to grow some, uh, to grow a market for some pretty important U.S. ag products. We're talking with American Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye looking at the impact, the losses we've occurred uh, since this trade war with China started. So you can you break it down by states, Veronica. What states have suffered the biggest losses? Well, I don't think it'll surprise you very much that um, our soybean-producing states uh, have had pretty significant losses, um, particularly those, um, you know, the, the, the plains region where uh, China has been really the source of a lot of growth in, in soybean acres up in, in that part of the world. So, you know, you're looking at North Dakota, they've lost 94% of their exports to uh, to China since this trade war began. Uh, South Dakota, 40%. Montana, 73%. Um, Washington State, um, and of course, that's not that's not soybeans, but that's apples, and they're down 54%. So uh, certainly that uh, upper uh, plains um, and the Midwest region have, have seen some pretty uh, dramatic declines in, in what they're exporting. And that's still going on, obviously. We don't have a deal yet. We're not, and it doesn't sound like the they know yet if and when that's going to get done, so this continues. Sure. You know, I think that's a, it's a good point. It's something that's easy to lose sight of is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk as, oh, we're going to we're gonna open up China for ag exports. And it's not to say that we don't have our issues, but it's been open, right? We were supposed to export $22 billion worth of ag products last year, and we're only, uh, we clocked in at $9 billion. Um, even in D.C. language, $13 billion is a, is a lot of money. So, um, you know, that's that's not insignificant. And when we're talking about the issues that need to be resolved, by and large, they're not ag issues. They're trying to come to some sort of a re- resolution on steel and aluminum. Uh, we're talking about intellectual property theft and, and forced technology transfer in China. Now, U.S. agriculture is barren borne the brunt of the impact and the, the anger uh, from the Chinese over our uh, tariff that we've put on them. But it's not agriculture that's caused this. So um, we, we all wait patiently to see if we're able to uh, have some positive outcomes on, on steel and aluminum and on, on IP so that we can get back to selling uh, our products to, to the Chinese consumer. Now, the market facilitation payments helped some, soybeans more more than others, but uh, certainly did not uh, come close to meeting the, the losses that we have seen since this started. That's a great point. And um, I want to talk about a, a little bit uh, about some products that, that maybe we don't talk about enough, and that's some of the specialty crops. Um, you know, we, we said earlier that uh, apples, over 30% of U.S. apple exports are to the Chinese market. Uh, and bringing in this market facilitation, uh, California Farm Bureau estimated that um, lost U.S. fruit and nut exports were going to be about $2.6 billion per year. Of that, $419 million was apple exports. Now, that market facilitation program, 
and and all of the the trade aid that that we're happy to have, but still was only supposed to be ninety three million. So that's a lot of numbers all at once. But that means, by and large, that the market facilitation program is only about a quarter of making those producers whole from the losses that they were expecting to to see as a result of this trade action. And I'm pretty confident in saying that that's probably the case across most of agriculture. You know, I talk a lot about uh, whatever, whenever a deal gets done, hopefully there'll be one, but whenever that happens, we won't be able to judge it for quite a while because the the big picture, the long-term impact of this uh, will take a while to sort out. And the fact that these numbers that you're telling us about now any deal that gets done, I know the president keeps saying it's going to be great for our farmers, but first you've got to make up what you lost before you start talking about how much you're going to gain. So, I mean, it's going to have to be quite a deal and take a while to, to recover from this. You know, I think something that uh, has been on my mind for, for a while now is, you know, once we get back to a normal trade relationship, and this goes to your, to your point, how much damage have we done to underlying demand. And something that that really is keeping me awake at night is the Chinese have been experimenting with different sources of protein for uh, their significant hog population. You know, they were up to about a a 20% inclusion on soybean meal uh, before this rocky road uh, began. And they've been experimenting with, you know, diversifying that, that protein source of adding... Uh, different different products in using you know rapeseed and instead of soybean meal, uh, diversifying their suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that uh, the con- what I have concerns of is uh, okay. So what if what if we drop as a supplier uh, as far as the total share of the of the bean market in China? But also what if they decide that they just don't want as many soybeans as they did before? Uh, so it's it's hard to imagine. You know, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. That that the Chinese would have gone down this path without the nudging of this trade uh, trade spat, and I think that relationship um, and that example could be repeated across a lot of different products. That we've forced our customer to think about substitute products. We've forced them to think about um, substitute suppliers, uh, and that takes a long time to unwind. Yeah. I compare it often to the Russian grain embargo back in the late 70s. Uh, the impact of that has been felt ever since, even after the embargo was lifted. That wasn't the end of it. It changed a lot of things around the world, and we're still feeling the impact of that. And I, I wonder if this will also have those long-term impacts as well. Veronica, real quick, where can people see this uh, information you've talked about as far as state-by-state breakdown of the damage done by the trade war with China? Well, Chief Economist uh, tweeted it out yesterday, I think, uh, on, on Twitter. Um, so you can find it there. And we should have a, a story out that includes those maps uh, today or tomorrow on our Market Intel channel. And that's at fb.org backslash Market Intel. And Very good. Uh, we try to post two or three articles a week uh, on a wide variety of topics, including trade, since we've been talking about that so much here in the last two years. What's well, an interesting graph, and it shows a lot of... Uh, it shows some information that kind of quantifies what we've been talking about. Thank you very much, Veronica. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Veronica Nye, Farm Bureau Economist. Coming up next, more on that E15 proposed rule from Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Stay with us on AOA. AOA. 
You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacor Zemian brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected wheat acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all, all together, together in one portfolio, portfolio you're, you're covered, covered all the way through harvest. That's, That's a, a winning, winning combination. combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, so we have the E15 proposal. It's two parts. The part that would allow summer sales uh, and also the part on rent reform. So I have an idea of Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, was burning the midnight oil last night. I don't know if you have a lamp that runs on ethanol, maybe E15 lamp that he has there by the bedside. Reading this, what, some 170-some-odd pages, Jeff? Yeah, 175 pages to be exact, Mike. Uh, and, and believe it or not, we did get through most of it yesterday. Uh, <laughs> at least uh, had a good cursory review of, of the proposal. So what do you think? Well, I, you know, I, a couple thoughts. I mean, I, I think it's it was clear to us as we went through the proposal that EPA has put a lot of uh, care and, and thought and consideration into the E15 half of the rule. Um, they've done a lot of homework on, on the issues, the legal and technical issues involved there. And they've honestly, I mean, they've been thinking about this and looking at this issue for quite a long time. So it wasn't terribly surprising that that part of the rule uh, was was fairly well developed and and uh, was clear that a lot of work went into it. Uh, the other half of the rule, however, the rent reform piece, uh, it was equally clear that there was less uh, thought and, and consideration and preparation and development uh, with those proposed provisions and and you know ostensibly that that part of the rule is is aimed at improving transparency in the rent market. Uh, in looking at some of the proposals there, we're a little concerned that it might have the opposite effect and, and might actually complicate uh, operation of the rent market and constrain liquidity and, and, and have some other kind of unintended consequences. So yet again, uh, we believe there's good reason to split those two pieces of the rule, set aside the rent reform stuff. The oil guys are divided on that. Let them you know, hash that out, um, and let's move forward with the RVP piece and, and make sure it's done before summer. 79 days to go. Uh, this is a step to getting it done in time. Uh, are you feeling any better about them getting it done by June 1st? Well, it's it's still a heavy lift, and, and you know, we're kind of looking at this like a, a 4 by 100 relay, a sprint relay. And, and yesterday, you know, I think the baton was handed off to that second leg, that second runner, um, so we've still got, you know, a lot of the race left uh, and not a lot of time. You, you, you know, as you mentioned, 79 days. Um, yesterday's proposal began a public comment process. 
that period is 45 days long. It, it ends on April 29th. So EPA basically will have the month of May to read and, and synthesize probably tens of thousands of comments they get from the public, write the final rule, get that final through uh, final rule through White House review, and and oh by the way, there's a Memorial Day you know holiday in there. Um, so so getting all of that done in in 30 days in the month of May is is going to be a very challenging task for for EPA. We're, we remain hopeful they'll get it done. Um, honestly, the, this proposal got through the White House review quicker than we thought it would. Uh, it was only there for a week or less. Uh, so that's encouraging, and it's clear that they have, they have hit warp speed with this rule and, and made it a top priority. Uh, so we're hoping it gets done. Uh, fingers crossed. But as we've talked about before, Jeff, if, if you're a retailer and looking at whether or not to offer E15 this summer, it would still yep. take, I mean, you're, you're in the planning stages, already would have been. It would take a leap of faith uh, saying, we're going to assume that it's going to be approved, but we don't really know. i got a feeling that's probably holding some back. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, there's some pieces of this proposal, even on the RVP, the E15 side, um, that are a little troubling and give us a little concern. And, and, but that's why there's a public comment period, and we're able to share our thoughts and questions and concerns with EPA. But, but if you're a retailer or a marketer or a terminal operator, um, you're looking for certainty, and, and you're looking for that certainty well before May 31st or June 1st. Uh, you need to know by the end of April, early May, um, if this thing is going to, to, to be finalized or not um, and, and how EPA is going to approach uh, regulation and enforcement on, on E15. So we continue to uh, encourage EPA to send a signal to the marketplace uh, certainly by the end of April, uh, to, to let uh, the supply chain know how EPA plans to proceed uh, on kind of the legal and enforcement issues related to all this. Because you're right, a, a retailer sitting on the sidelines today is not going to jump into the E15 market right now just based on a hope and a prayer that this rulemaking gets done before summer. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, you mentioned there are some things in there that are somewhat troubling for you still, although overall you like the uh, the E15 side of it. What are some of those areas of concern that you have? Well, there's there's some, some provisions in there uh, regarding the way E15 is made today at, at retail sites. And, and as you probably know, Mike, most E15 being sold today is being blended at retail via blender pumps where, where the retailer is taking um, E10 from one tank and E85 from another, um, combining those fuels to make E15. Um, EPA has uh, apparently has some concerns about that method of, of blending E15, um, and, and that concern really stems from not knowing exactly what, what fuel components were used to make the E85. You know, as we know, there's some natural gas liquids, natural gasoline being used in E85 today. Um, it's a very low-cost, good source of, of the hydrocarbon in E85. Uh, EPA seems to have some concern and, and issue with the use of, of that product, and, and more so just not knowing exactly what, what is ending up in the E15 that's made at retail. So um, they've proposed a few um, you know, fairly onerous uh, uh, conditions around making E15 via that method. Um, and, it, and it appears to us that they're really trying to drive E15 blending to the terminal level. Uh, 
but again, you know, most E15 out there today, I'd say the majority of the 16, 1700 stations selling E15 today are blending the fuel on site, and we want to make sure they're able to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen some criticism uh, about E15, again, so uh, misplaced and inaccurate. I mean, they're trying to portray it, the critics are trying to portray this as some kind of a mandate. And again, right. we remind people, this just is would allow the sale of E15, does not force the sale of E15. So it just it's another option. It would be another a choice out there, but not a mandate. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And, and we hear this one over and over and over, and it's, and it's being purposely mischaracterized by the oil guys and, and, and people who don't want the competition in the marketplace. This is not a mandate. It's not a requirement for anybody to sell E15. It simply opens the door and allows retailers to make that choice and decide what products are best for them and best for their customers. Um, This is truly the sort of of deregulatory and and red tape removing regulatory fix that uh, President Trump has has been supporting and and frankly, uh, you know, campaigned on. Um, So this is this is not a this is not a new regulatory requirement, not a mandate, uh, nothing like that. It's simply enabling competition and allowing retailers to make, uh, you know, make uh, their own decisions and choices. Yeah, I always shake my head when people say, well, the, the marketplace ought to decide what, what is used. Well, yeah. you got to be in the marketplace for them to make that choice, right? This just gets <laughs> you in the right. marketplace. That, that's right. And, and if we truly had a free market where the marketplace was determining, you know, what fuels are, are, are available to consumers and, and what choices are, are available – um, you know, it'd be a much different situation. We, we, with ethanol blended fuels, we have lower cost, we have cleaner fuels, we have fuels that are made domestically. Um, in, in a free market, that, that fuel is going to get picked any day over dirtier, imported, higher cost fuels. Um, we don't have a free market, and that's why the RFS is, is so important in creating an opportunity, an opening in a market that is otherwise closed to competition. Jeff, have you heard anything from any reasoning from EPA why they refuse to separate the REN reform out from the E15 summer proposal? Well, the the only rationale we've heard, Mike, is is they say, well, look, when when President Trump went to Iowa and and made this commitment, he talked about doing both of these things uh, together, and so you know the, that's the direction from the top. Uh, we have to keep them um, together as as one package. And, you know, that's, that's been the order from on high. And, uh, you know, we just have a really hard time um, with that. These are two completely unrelated measures. Uh, REN reform has nothing to do with E15 and, and vice versa. Uh, and we just don't see any reason to be tying them together. And, and frankly, we're, you know, as you've heard from us before, uh, worried that the controversial nature and the complexity of some of these REN reform ideas could really drag the whole package down. And again, we we point out, uh, I think, again, some of the uh, the fallacy of all this anyway has been that in some places E-15 is already allowed to be sold in the summertime. Oh, that's right. E-15 in about a third of the gasoline market, the uh, reformulated gasoline markets, uh, is allowed to be sold and, and is being sold uh, year-round and, and through the summer. Um, and, you know, the, the, the irony of this whole thing, Mike, is that E15 actually has lower volatility 
than E10. And, and volatility has been the entire concern that, is, that has led EPA to ban its, its use in the summertime in two-thirds of the gasoline market. Um, so, again, this is an overdue regulatory fix. It's a, it's a remnant of a 30-year-old regulation that was written at a time when nobody was contemplating E15 even being uh, an option at some point in the future. So we've taken another step, and hopefully we can take more in a, quickly here in a short period of time. Jeff, thanks for the update. Uh, thank you, Mike. Take care. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Up next, an interesting study on beef production and greenhouse gas emissions. Stay with us. We'll have that next on AOA. Powerful. Effective. Proven. Tough. Consistent. Reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The new, the Green New Deal proposal has once again put a spotlight on beef production when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Well, there's a new USDA Agricultural Research Service study that finds greenhouse gas emissions from U.S. beef production and inputs are not significant contributors to climate change. Here to talk about it is Mary Thomas Hart, NCBA's Deputy Environmental Counsel. Mary, thanks for joining us. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about this study. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Well, we got this study earlier this week, and honestly, it told us a lot of what we already knew, that beef cattle are not a significant contributor to climate change. Um, And I think that that, um, cattle production contributes about 3.3% of overall greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, so we were really happy to see those numbers, um, and, and we'll certainly be taking those numbers to the hill and, and through the countryside. This has long been debated, and that's why I, I think frustrating to many in, in, the, in the cattle industry to see uh, them targeted again when the, when the Green New Deal proposal came out. Uh, I mean, this seems... this. This idea of uh, belching cows uh, just seems to uh, hang on out there, and is and this study shows uh, it, it's not factually sound, but the, it keeps coming up. Absolutely, and I think one of the other things that this study does pretty well to clarify is that transportation and electricity generation make up about 56% of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and you know, cattle are, are being, you know, put under a microscope when we really only contribute a very small portion to the overall picture. Um, so that's, yeah. Any other real takeaways? As you said, this is what we kind of knew, but it's good to have it actually, uh, you know, quantified. But anything else in this study that came out uh, that we should be more aware of that maybe we've overlooked? Um, I I think that it's really good to see that this study pairs nicely with something that EPA put out about a month ago. Um, EPA is in the process of releasing a greenhouse gas emissions inventory, and that inventory 
showed that cattle production, um, just kind of through the, the lifespan of the animal, contributes only 2% to greenhouse gas emissions. Now, those numbers are different because the, the life cycle assessment released earlier this week considers transportation and fuel use, so, so it's a, a slightly larger number. But when you look at these two studies, they, they kind of work together and they, they provide the same message. And so it's nice to see multiple agencies um, conveying that we aren't a problem. Now, what about if, um, if the critics would say, well, what about uh, the inputs that are produced that feed the animals? Are you taking that into consideration? Is that part of this? Yes. So the life cycle assessment released earlier this week considers transportation and it considers fuel use. Um, it looks at emissions from everything that goes into beef production. Um, and so I think we're, we're incredibly confident in that 3.3% because it looks at so many contributing factors. So this is a message that I guess will probably never get the, the national attention that uh, – a claim to the contrary would get, but it, it is significant and basically, again, shows that uh, beef production is not, and we underscore not, a significant contributor to long-term global warming. It's not, uh, it's not the source of, these, uh, of the level of greenhouse gas emissions that some would lead us to believe. Absolutely. So then this information, how do we not just preach to the choir with this information? How do we not just talk among ourselves and the ag community, but get this out to uh, uh, decision makers that might be thinking otherwise? I think you make a really good point there, and, and we're certainly using these numbers and taking them to Capitol Hill um, because, as you kind of highlighted, the Green New Deal is a very popular um, discussion topic in Washington, D.C. right now, um, so having some, some hard facts, some numbers that we can use to, um, to fight back against those policy proposals, um, it, it's really nice to have. And so um, we've, we've, we're taking these numbers to, to offices and, and all over D.C. Well, it's good to have that information, although as we have seen in other public and social debates on issues that impact agriculture and food production. Sometimes having the science and having the facts on your side don't always win the argument, but it sure helps to have those, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that that's our, um, our biggest push. You know, as people, um, as proponents of the Green New Deal um, push for these kind of um, unsubstantiated requests to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, all we ask is that whatever be done be based in fact and science. Um, and I think that our science shows, um, based on both of these studies from EPA and um, the USDA, that <laughs> we're not the problem. Yeah, I think, again, it gets back to so many people uh, not close to or not uh, really aware of uh, food production, in this case beef production, uh, they're easily swayed by other arguments. Hopefully they'll take a look at the facts here on this. Yes, we certainly hope so. 
Well, it's a significant numbers, and uh, we wanted to get that information out. And uh, uh, Mary Thomas Hart, NCBA's Deputy Environmental Counsel, has been with us. Mary, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. So, again, this new uh, study shows, again, greenhouse gas emissions from U.S. beef production and inputs are not significant contributors to climate change. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have uh, some more reaction to uh, the budget proposals by the administration and the E-15 proposal. We'll also be uh, taking a look at more market information, and we'll have the latest ag equipment sales numbers as well to go over. So all that coming up tomorrow. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions.